Okay, first, a quick check-in. In the last episode of season one, I signed off with a goodbye to 2016, which I characterized as, quote, what an odd, depressing, and horrific, and at times wondrous year, end quote. <laughs> I mean, who? Jesus Christ, how naive was I? 2016 feels like a cakewalk compared to right now. And I will not try to characterize 2020 now or ever. I promised a second season, and originally my concept was a collection of stories about people who continue to believe what has been proven false. Memory is always asking us to question what happened, and we're constantly revising what happened based on any facts we can find. But sometimes we get wedded to the story we tell ourselves. And I've always been fascinated by that and wanted to explore why people need to believe certain falsehoods. And this is as relevant now as it was when I first had the idea. The phenomena of QAnon alone is worth an entire season, and how people respond to the few definitive facts we have about Corona is worth a separate show. But I couldn't complete that season because I had competing projects and fewer resources, but a lot of you kept the idea of Memory Motel alive with a lot of feedback and pitches, especially my mother, who is now a de facto producer. Well, hello, Terrence. I'm sorry to be calling you, but I just couldn't resist. So I was driving home from Palm Bay, and I'm listening to the Neil Diamond Station, and what song should come on? You don't bring me flowers anymore. And I just started cracking up because flash memory comes to mind when you were, when we first moved to Morris Lake, and Dad was away a lot, and he'd call and we'd sing in the song and in the kitchen together, and then we'd sing it to Dad when he came home. And one evening, Dad came home, and he brought flowers, which, you know, after singing the song, you don't bring me flowers anymore, it was kind of poignant. But the best part was, after Dad brought me the flowers, then later on, you came up to me and you said, do you think if we sing, you don't bring me candy anymore, we all get candy? (laughs) I just couldn't, I just had to share that memory, that was just so poignant and so, oh, it was just awesome. So then we did sing Bring Candy and Dad did, okay? <laughs> but I thought, oh, okay. Take care. Love you, kiddo. Bye-bye. Well, hi, Terrence. I know it's late, but I just got home and I just had to share another memory with you. Well, hello, Terrence. It's Sister Mom D again. I'm calling because, remember, the one when I was reading it, it said that you were looking for memories of food I don't know if that's if you're doing that or not but that opens up a whole Pandora's box I was thinking about when you were like three years old Christmas Eve in Weehawken and I'm preparing what I have for you is technically not a real season but an unreal season which is fitting for right now one of the reasons I created the show was to explore the uncertainty of memory not knowing where facts end and fiction starts, and how to deal with that uncertainty. I know we're all living with a lot of uncertainty right now, an overabundance of uncertainty, 
And there's a big difference between uncertainty with a capital U and a lowercase u, but uncertainty is always with us. And I don't mean that in a glib way. I mean, when we're in the middle of our own personal stories, we don't know what's going to happen next. And at any given moment, one of us could face the unexpected, a win or a loss. The difference now is we're all experiencing uncertainty together. It may be our work, our love life, when we see our family next, when we travel back to our favorite place. No one is exempt. And in the midst of all the uncertainty, there is certainty. I'm old enough to remember watching Rodney King brutally beaten on TV. And there have been countless others beaten and killed and not caught on film before and after him. To just scratch the surface of the last few weeks, George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Jacob Blake, Daniel Prude. There is moral certainty. Police reform is long overdue. So certainty and uncertainty live side by side right now, and they always will. And the best we can do is navigate the uncertainty while we hold on to what is certain. With the unreal season, I wanted to share stories of people stepping into uncertainty. So, here we go. Welcome back to Memory Motel. I'm your host, Terrence Mickey. Today's episode, Song of Increase. In 2006, one quarter of the bees in the United States died. Since then, bees by the millions have been abandoning their hives. All over the world, honeybees have been vanishing. This catastrophic decline is referred to as colony collapse disorder. When Jacqueline Freeman became a beekeeper, she sought advice on how to care for her bees from both the most unlikely and obvious source. At this point in my life, I had zero interaction with bees. This probably was really the first serious interaction I ever had with them. Well, this was back in 1983, and I was at a conference, and it was in a a rural area, although it was a, a conference center, and they had a swimming pool there. And every day at lunchtime, we'd go out near the pool and have lunch, and I remember looking in the pool and seeing a a bee here and there that had fallen in just trying to scoop down and get some water and fallen in and couldn't get back out. And, you know, the first bee I caught, I remember probably used a blade of grass or something to catch it with. And the first few times I did it that way, and then I realized these poor little bees that were in the water, they weren't dangerous, and I could, eventually I got to the place where I could pick them up on my fingers. And it was my mission every day. I didn't care if I ate lunch. I had to get the bees first. And I scooped out hundreds of bees over that that almost two-month period. I grew up in a very small town in New England. And there was lots of fields and forest, and we lived near a pond. So I spent most of my childhood in the forest. Even when I was little, little, you know, when I was probably seven years old, I wanted to understand plants and trees and flowers, and I 
Even as a little kid, I knew like what week each year the trilliums were going to bloom. And I felt like um, I felt like I had some deep connection to everything out there. I thought I was going to grow up to be a botanist. I was so close to plants. But I ended up going a different direction. In 2002, my husband and I bought our farm. And we didn't intend to become farmers. We just wanted something that reminded us of New England. The first year I was there, a neighbor had some bees. They didn't want the bees in the backyard. They were in an old beehive tucked in the, in the woods. And could we take them? I had no experience other than that little time in the swimming pool, which frankly I'd long since forgotten about. But I got those bees, moved them into the field, and oh man, I used to go there every single day for hours and sit next to them in my full bee suit because I was a little afraid of them. My full bee suit looks like a hazmat suit. I had my farm boots that come up to my knees and I had duct taped so that no bee would slide down in there. Um, I had gloves and I was duct taped around with the gloves met my sleeves as well. And it was hot, it was summertime. I was sweltering inside. Really, I was seriously protecting myself from them. When a bee would land on the landing board in front of the hive, a lot of times they were they would rush right inside with their you know to do their task to let go of the pollen and the nectar but sometimes they were met on the landing board by another bee who came over to help them do something whether it was to take the nectar from them which they'd take from the bee's mouth into the other the helper bee's mouth or to help them with taking the pollen that they carried in off of their hind legs Sometimes it was just to check them out and make sure, you know, a bee would land and say, oh, there's, there's a little piece of something stuck here. And another bee would come out and give them the once-over all over and, and find what it was that was stuck on them or bothering them and clean them up, and then they'd go in. And I just loved how they interacted. Everything they did was just like a little miracle to me. Oh, man, from the start, I was in love with them. My first year that I had bees, I thought, I should go to bee school. I should learn all about this. But the only kinds of bee school back then, and you know, this was 2002, three, somewhere around there, the only kinds were really very conventional bee school. And I have an organic farm. It's a biodynamic farm. We're very much tuned into not using chemicals and respecting nature. And it really bothered me that I couldn't find any training in how to do this organically. So I went off to conventional bee school and it was, I found it alarming and distressing. And I saw so many things done there that I thought, I, I can't do that. I can't do that to my bees. So when I was in bee school, one of the things we did was we had, they paired everybody up and they gave them a hive to stand in front of and they talked us through getting the colony ready for spring. And what you did was you opened up the hive and you found where the, where the old queen was in there. Queens are identified by having a, a colored dot placed on their back. And when you look in with 10,000 bees inside the hive, it's easy to find the queen because she's got the bright yellow dot or the bright blue dot, depending on what year it is. The colors change every year. So I was standing there holding this little tiny wooden package with a screen on it and it had a queen in it, and I was the one holding the queen. 
And I was just fascinated. I'd never seen a queen bee up close. And she had a few little uh, maiden bees with her that take care of her. And it was in a box with a little sugar cube in one end of it. And I, this was as far as I got. I just looked at it and I was marveling at it and thinking, isn't that wonderful? And in the meantime, the instructor said to the other person, said, okay, you see the queen, uh-huh, uh-huh. I said, okay, reach in, now squish the queen. And the guy standing next to me reached in and squished the queen, killed her, and plucked her out and tossed her in the grass. And I, oh my God, I was dumbfounded. I was just, how could, what? I had no idea we were gonna be killing queens. And you know, you'd think I'd figure it out. There's one queen to a hive, there's an old queen in there, and I'm standing there holding a new queen. Hmm. But I, I hadn't had that thought. I really hadn't considered that we would be killing any queens that day. And I asked, I said, why are we killing her? She looked like everything was fine. And they said, no, they lose their fertility in the second year. So at the end of the first year, we take out all the old queens and kill them, and we replace them with a new young queen. Now, I know that a queen can live five, six, seven years and still be fertile. I've read that many places. And so here I am, the junior beekeeper. And I said, but, and they said, but that's not really the case anymore. The queens have lost their fertility. They only last about a year. That's distressing. That beginning of the bee crisis was, was right in my first or second year. So it was right at the very start of it. it everybody was in a bit of a dither about what's going to happen with the bees. Well, not good things happened. And yes, we um, typically lose about 40%. Some, some years it's as high as 45% of all the bees in America in one year. And we do it over and over again. So the way that beekeeping is being done right now is clearly not sustainable because we lose so many bees and then you have to go replace them and you have to do a lot of things that aren't really good for the bees in order to do that. And I did try to look at a lot of the things that I had learned and say, is that something that a bee would like to have happen or not? So right from the very start, I, I knew it was not something I was going to follow, that there had to be another way and that I was gonna find that other way no matter what it was, where it was or what it was, I needed to know more. I had a long time spent sitting next to the beehives going, okay, I'm on my own. There are no books, there are no internet discussion groups invented yet. There was no one I could ask. I didn't know anybody who had the same attitude as me and had bees, and especially anybody who lived nearby. So I just felt like I'm on my own and I turned to the bees and I would sit next to them every day and I would I would talk to them. I would say, I want to do good by you. I, I really want to do the right things. I don't want to do any practices that are going to harm you in any way. But I don't know exactly what I'm supposed to be doing. So if you have anything you'd want me to know, please share it with me. And I don't even know what I meant when I said that, but it was an earnest request, and I must have said it a thousand times. Just please share with me what I need to know. I really want to do this in the way that is most respectful to you. So one morning I was laying in bed, I'd just woken up, and I, I wouldn't quite call it meditation. It was just a time when I would spend before I was fully awake where I would just bless everyone on the farm. And then I had this, this little piece of information 
come in. It was about the drones, and it was something I didn't know about them. And I remember writing it down and thinking, where did that come from? First of all, you have the queen, whose one mission is to lay lots of eggs. And she's the mother of all the bees in the hive. And then you have the drones. They're the boys. And they're there for mating with virgin queens who come from other hives. The drones, the boy bees, have always been thought to have no tasks at all. And frankly, most beekeepers think of them as they just take up extra space. I have a mated queen. Why do I need drones for other hives in my hive? And their little drone eggs are taken out and killed um, because they're thought to just have the life of Riley and they, uh, you know, drink up all the honey and they don't contribute anything back again. Uh, as far as the bees are concerned, that's completely wrong. But what the drones do is they um, provide some warmth in the nursery. They're ready to mate with a virgin queen anytime the opportunity presents. And the other one is, and this part was imparted to me by the bees, they sing the song of increase. And this part, I'm kind of going deeper into this than I expected. Did you want a superficial answer to that? Rudolf Steiner uh, has said that they, were, they are the sense organs of the hive. They have these enormous eyes. And I believe they see things that the rest of us can't see, even the other bees in the hive. They are made to be creatures of sense. There's a curious thing, the female bees, the I call them the maidens, although they're commonly called workers. The maidens do most of the tasks in the hive, and every bee in that hive has the scent of a queen, their queen, on them. They all smell like her, and it's a very powerful scent, and if a maiden went to another hive and landed on the front doorstep, the little guard bees would come out and go, you do not smell like our queen. There's no way we're gonna let you inside of our hive. So they're kicked out. But a drone, a drone can fly over to any hive anywhere and they just roll right past the front entrance and go straight inside. And if you think of where, where in the world would you never want a stranger to go in your home? Of course you'd say it's the nursery, but that's right where they go to. So these drones stroll right in the front door and guess what, they go right to the nursery. The bees have explained to me that what they're doing when they go in there is singing a song. And it's a song that tells all about the history of the bees all the way back to the beginning of time and how they go far into the future. It's, it's, it, it often makes me think of the Aborigine tribes and some African tribes who, when babies are being born, they, they sing the song of creation. And they understand that if that song isn't sung as a child is being born, then it's, it's um, that child is, grows up to be a human who's untethered, who doesn't have a deep connection to where they came from and where they're going. 
And I, I just love that image, and I feel like that's exactly the same thing, the song of creation that the drones are imparting to the babies as they're being born. So when I hear of beekeepers who dispatch with drones, I think, oh my God, that whole hive then is disconnected, and what a terrible thing to do to them. And then a few days later, the same thing happened again with another piece of information about bees. And again, it was something that was beyond my capacity to have made up on my own. <laughs> I didn't understand the intricacies of the bee kingdom well enough to come up with something like this. And then it just came hard and fast. Just about every morning I woke up, there would be something there for me to write down. And my husband became the the scribe so that I could stay with the images. Sometimes it was words, often it was spoken, and I could write it down just the way it came. I finally acknowledged that it was clearly coming from the bees and not from me, and people were interested in it, but um, I was still, I kind of kept most of it close to my vest. I didn't share all of it with anyone other than my husband. You know, on, on my intellect side, it was like, wow, that was pretty far out, and where did that come from? But deep in my soul, I knew that that was, the bees were communicating with me. And I thought back to the, you know, the thousand times I asked them for help, and I never expected them to speak back. But I do believe that the earnestness that I asked that question with, that it came back, and so they, sang their songs to me and told me all this information and I, I found I still find it miraculous and I'm and I'm so so grateful because it's enriched my life immeasurably to have that um, awareness of an, a communication with another being that's not of the same the same species as me. So when I talked with the bees much later, and I said, what is the deal with this? What, why, why have we lost the fertility of the queens? Why is that going in that direction? And they said, one of the conventional practices is that we prevent swarming. In the springtime, when a hive is really, really healthy and full of abundance of many, many eggs laid for the next generation and lots of pollen and honey put away. Uh, the pollen is for feeding the babies. The honey is for feeding the adult bees. And there's just a proliferation of new bees being born. That's the time when the hive itself, the colony, says to itself, there's plenty, plenty here for everybody. This is the time when we go and swarm. The swarm is pure chaos. It's 20,000 bees all flying in an area about 60 feet by 60 feet by 60 feet. And they're flying in every direction. They never bump into each other. It's incredible. The sound, the sound just totally surrounds you. It, it vibrates in through your bones.
What the bees told me is that conventional beekeeping thwarts swarming. Conventional beekeepers don't want to swarm because two-thirds of their bees are going to leave and honey production drops way down for the next month and a half until the population is brought back up again. And swarming is nature's way of taking the bees out into the world and creating a brand new second hive. So they split and the old queen will leave and she'll take about two-thirds of the older bees with her. Some of the younger bees too, but mostly the older bees. And they go off and they fly off together in a swarm. If you're a honeymaker, it's a loss of income. And the second thing is that they often talk about how it scares the public, so we shouldn't let them swarm for that reason either. I don't agree with that at all. What the bees told me is that when this queen goes out and flies with the chaos of the swarm, what happens is that the sunlight hits her on her skin and it absorbs into her and it triggers her hormones. It triggers the fertility hormones. And by flying in the sun once a year, she regains her fertility and then she's fertile for the next year. And if she flies out in the swarm every year, as they're wont to do, then her fertility is ensured. And then she's fertile for five, six, seven years as long as she lives. Now, that's incredible. That's, that made instant sense to me. The first time they told that to me, I was like, well, of course, if a conventional beekeeper thwarts the swarming process and doesn't let his poor little queen get out in the sun and have her hormones turn on, of course she's infertile. And it would just look like an error in, in beekeeping that, you know, well, we certainly don't need to have queens that are infertile, but if they'd only let their bees swarm, those queens would never be infertile. It's so important that we see them as something more than an insect or a bunch of insects in a box. I think we've been making mistakes in our management, our heavy management of bees for so long that we've caused a lot of the colonies to become weaker and weaker. I think we'd be so much better off if we looked at what are the natural processes that bees have. And in those processes, what can we be hands off about? If we stop trying to push them to hurry, if we stop trying to make you know, huge amounts of honey, um, if we stop making them a production vehicle and let them be more a natural animal who lives in the landscape, oh, I think everyone would be so much better off. It's more important to me to have a relationship with the bees than it is to source them for products. So I take very little honey. As a matter of fact, I don't think I've taken any honey out of my hives in the last two, maybe three years. And I've decided that honey shouldn't be a sweetener that I put in cookies and cakes and breads and things like that. It really should be, or even my tea, that it should be something that I use more like a sacrament something where I acknowledge the holiness of this process that's created this wonderful, sweet elixir. And if I treat it like that, I feel like my relationship is more respectful with them. That song has such a hypnotic quality. I practically go into trance when I hear it. 
it's it's always amazing to me how much that permeates every part of me. It's deep and it's enriching and it makes something happen in me. It makes me happy inside in a way that nothing else does. And and I'm by nature I'm a happy person. But having that sound around me Oh my God, it just, it fills my heart. It makes me feel something magnificent is happening inside of me and in this whole world that is permeated by the sound of the bees. I sound like a real bee fanatic there, I know. <laughs> and I can't even apologize for it because that's truly how I feel. That they're so crucial to the health of the world. This episode was produced and edited by me. Thank you, Jacqueline Freeman, for the interview. Her book, Song of Increase, is available at your local bookstore. A huge, huge thanks to Greg Herzenak, who is my musical collaborator for the Unreal season. He's incredible, and I'm so grateful for his kindness and genius. Except for the Memory Motel theme music, which was composed by Bart Walshaw, all the music in the Unreal season is Greg's original composition or instrumentation. A special thanks to Dana Joy Altman for the editorial feedback. And a big thank you to our sponsor, Wink Puzzles. If you're in the market for a challenging and beautifully designed jigsaw puzzle, I have a treat for you. Wink Puzzles are not your grandmother's puzzles. You will find no lighthouses or sunsets or display of stuffed animals. Instead, designer Brenda Bergen has married her years of design experience with her love of puzzles and created a series of modern puzzles that are not disappointingly easy or frustratingly hard. They're beautiful. And for the listeners of Memory Motel, we have a promo code for you. Please visit the website winkpuzzles.com, W-I-N-K puzzles.com, and use the promo code MEMORY, all caps, for a discount. And thank you listeners for coming back. Stay healthy. And stay tuned for the next episode, Who Knew Her, with the author Nick Flynn.